Look, I wouldn't call myself old, but, you know, I guess nobody does. I mean, old is always about 20 years further down the track to where you are now. But I'm in my 50s. I mean, early 50s, mind you. So I'm no longer calling myself young. And honestly, I'm unlikely now ever to be tagged high potential anything ever again. That time has come and it's gone. Being this age, I'm starting to feel the slight insults of my body breaking down. I've just had a phone call today from a doctor mentioning some slight indications of arthritis in my shoulder. Come on. And I sometimes make undignified noises when I'm trying to get out of a chair. My running speed has gone from very slow to barely moving. But, you know, all in all, I'm fine. I adapt. I change the way I do things. I try to make them easier and to accommodate my new limitations. But all of this is happening to me within the bounds of what you might call normal. I'm cognitively and physically pretty much somewhere in the middle of the bell curve. But what happens when you or somebody who's central to your life finds yourself or their self on the end of the bell curve? What deep adaption is asked of you? And more importantly, how might the world better accommodate and welcome who you are? Welcome to Two Pages with MVS, the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. Sarah Hendren grew up in a highly conservative religious small town in Arkansas. Now, she's a professor at Olin College of Engineering, just outside Boston, so in the liberal northeast of the United States. Just as she has a foot in each of these two geographical worlds, her work also finds her straddling two worlds, the humanities and technology. Her book, What Can a Body Do?, shares her insights as someone who's a design engineer. I'm an artist, trained as an artist and a historian and really like a humanities culture person. And for the last seven years, I've been teaching all students who study engineering and major in engineering at an engineering school. And no one is more surprised than me to find that. But that that insider outsider is a powerful muse and friction for me. So it's like really fun for me to have to find new languages for both for the arts and then to be a lifelong learner in engineering, which is something I never took up as a young person. But I love that kind of beginner's mindset that it's uh, created. And I just am finding that that's kind of where, that's how I feel the most alive is that super steep learning curve. I always love talking to people who are both outside and inside a profession. It's so often where innovation, disruption, and provocation come from. It's also often a wellspring of humanity, humility, and empathy. When you're inside and outside with kind of a foot here and there, you keep the granular humanity of uh, lots of different kinds of people fully intact, you know? So I can think of lots of people that, who I was raised with who I disagree with, you know, in a vigorous way on politics, on religion, on, you know, all kinds of cultural matters, feminism, you name it, raising kids. And yet I can still imagine a really dimensional humanity to those people because I still see them and they're people who raised me. So Sarah left home to live a life and be a person different from what her upbringing might have suggested was her destiny. That was by choice. But sometimes, I mean, often, in fact, our lives are turned upside down by the unexpected. Like a lot of times our adulthood is about 
um, assimilating new stuff that happens to us into what we already, our story of ourselves that we, that's pretty formed, like, you know, like, mm -hmm. oh, this new data is coming at me. I have ways to assimilate it into what I, right. you know, my the story I've operated. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But that sometimes something comes along that is so disruptive that sometimes you need to accommodate instead of assimilate. And that means your own story has to shift and change. Right. And that for me, having a son with Down syndrome as the first baby that I had, yes. first of three, was a moment where I really could not assimilate his arrival and everything that comes with that arrival mm. with the story that had been built, that I had been built with thus far. And right. I, I did have to accommodate. And that for that, you know, that was this kind of like shove out of insiderness. It is the direct line to how I ended up teaching at an engineering school. I never would have <laughs> right. imagined that. So, so it was a kind of shove from life that again, so much of adulthood, you know, just the inertia of adulthood teaches us to assimilate. I did have to accommodate. And so that has been both, you know, really challenging and also the most productive and creative set of intellectual and personal changes of my life. That was 15 years ago now. And I had to, so that I had to sort of go, what does culture, art making, the power of yeah. language, where does it meet up with technology? Uh, and I mean, we can talk about that at length if you want, but it's like, that was the thing that got me to go, oh, I need to actually be speaking in a context of technology around the right. politics of disability, because I see a world within which there is this disjuncture that I cannot assimilate. It just can't, it can't be done. So tell us about the book you've chosen to read. Yeah. So this book is a book um, that landed in my life right after my son Graham was born. Uh, a friend just sent it to me you know, kind of on a lark, but it's called Life as We Know It, mm. A Father, a Family, and an Exceptional Child by Michael Barabay. And it is, uh, it's part uh, memoir and then part kind of like super theoretical treatise of normalcy and, you know, right. uh, bodies and kind of bioethics and genetics and all kinds of things mixed together. And it arrived at, at a time in my life. So my son was born with Down syndrome. Um, we got a diagnosis after birth in the same way that that Barabay and his wife did. And, you know, my life just kind of filled up with these messages from people that actually were, were kind of in the most well-meaning way, kind of reduced the humanity of who my son was. Like people would say right. to me like, oh, well, they're the happiest people. They are the happiest people on earth, right. you know, people with Down syndrome. And they're again, they're trying, they're fumbling in the dark to be supportive. Mm. But I was sort of looking in vain. This is in 2006, you know, before the Internet sort of became a kind of social uh, centralized social medium that it is. And so I was like, what, you know, it can't be that the, the planet has never seen a creature like this, you know, with radical individuality. It can't be that on a Tuesday, he was a radical individual. And then on a Wednesday, <laughs> he became a type, you know, right. So I was, you know, really desperate for images that were not like hearts and puppies of Down syndrome, you know, in, mm. the, in, the, in the world. And a lot of people were sending me that stuff. Right. Again, well meaning. So then my friend Carl Blossom sent me this book, and I thought, this is what I've been looking for. And I'll tell you why, Michael, because it was this memoir of like, yes, okay, here's some people who had my experience. Sure, a memoir does that. But this was the kind of book that said, oh, you you are going through a particular story. It's part of something big. It's mm. part of a huge history in disability rights. And in, in right, the, the legacy of eugenics and the construction of normal and right. all kinds of stuff. And I thought, oh, I'm actually not alone here. I mean, in this powerful way, I mean, literature mm. always does that for us, but 
in this very concrete way. I'm part of something big. And that, it turns out, has shaped my own work and my own book for the last 15 years, which is just to say, the things that happen to us are not these kind of overcomer therapeutic stories that then we only make sense of. Of course, we are we are the protagonists of our own lives, and we do have to make that sense for sure. Yeah. But a much bigger story is also waiting to like collect and organize us and, and energize us if we see it as such. And so I this was a book that said to me, oh, you you are part of something. And I wanted my book to also in highlighting so many voices of people with yeah. disabilities and the the vivid language of design to say, if you find yourself in a changed body one day to the next or looking at your body in a different way in your experience, mm-hmm. you too have joined something really big, really big. It's bigger than you in the best way. And so so this book could have sort of set me on that path. Right. Um, well, what is it about being connected to a bigger story that gives you solace? Yeah. I mean, I think maybe it's just that old humanist affirmation, which never, never runs out of <laughs> profundity, you know, like that nothing human is alien to me. So right. if nothing human is alien to me, then then when I read books, I both see the mirror of my own recognizable experience. But then even more importantly, I see other people's experiences that on the surface seem alien to mine. But in right. fact, because they're wrapped in a story, I recognize and that moment means what, right? That yeah, that I am not just trapped in this hermetically sealed consciousness. You know, like that I actually, right? We are made to connect in our many varied ways. Yeah, I am connected then to to a story of humanity that is, if not relatable, I sort of hate that word. It is recognizable, mm. and I think recognizable supersedes that. You know, like oh, I need to see only the mirror of my own experience. No, I need to be extended from my own experience. I guess I, I experience that as a kind of freedom you know, from the partiality and the blinkeredness yeah. of how I walk through the world. I think there's a quote from a poet, Muriel, somebody which says, um, the universe is not made up of atoms, it's made up of stories. Mm. And I think you're speaking to that in some way. Yeah, and the physicist too would say, like Carlo Rovelli, the physicist says, like, time is more like a kiss than a stone. It's actually <laughs> like, it's oh, like the, that. The time is like interaction. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. that really if physicists are being honest, right? Like we think of it as these kind of chunks of like as time is this kind of hard thing against which are we live our lives, but it is, it is just, it is the fabric mm. that the interaction is all. Um, and I, I find that, yeah, I guess I, I find that both energizing and, um, and galvanizing, you know, like, it's not just like, Oh, I feel comforted by the fact mm. that, that, that my story is not, my own and it's not, I'm not alone, but it's that I also feel like, oh, there's my lizard brain is always competing to sort of tell me that how I see the world is the way to see the world. And I think it's the dignity of consciousness to go like, that's not the case. So how can I keep filling that with that invitation to Mm. see beyond my very real limitations? (laughs) Will you uh, tell us about the two pages you've selected from the book? It sounds like a powerful book. Yeah. It is. Um, and I, you know, again, I just have never, I've, I don't really go in, this is about like prenatal testing and abortion, like talk about issues that people tend not to want to talk about. And I had to right. very carefully write about it in my own book, but it is nonetheless um, a profound kind of bioethical conundrum that I think is worth 
uh, investigating and and to refuse to take a kind of right versus left, you know, kind of talking points approach mm -hmm. to this issue, because it's about the, the serious matter that is like human reproduction and the, and the decision to parent. But I love the way that Barabe has both um, really shown himself to us, like had, being present to the reader, it's hard to do, and also has a kind of distance, you know, in an intellectual sense. So let me read a Perfect. couple of passages. That's okay. Lovely. Thank you. So I'll just preface it by saying that uh, Michael is Barabay is the speaker here in the first person, and he'll refer to Janet, who is his wife, and to James or Jamie, they're the same person, who is his son with Down syndrome. Our decision to forgo amniocentesis was deliberate. We debated it for some time, knowing full well that for us, this constituted a, quote, passive decision to carry the pregnancy to term if the child did in fact have something like Down syndrome, something that a mirror sonogram wouldn't detect. I honestly did not recall the conversation Janet has often related to me in which she said, quote, you realize that we're taking the chance that the baby will be born with Down syndrome, end quote. And I apparently replied, quote, well, we'll just love him all the more then, end quote. This seems to me a nice, if somewhat blithe and uninformed thing to have said, but I cannot actually vouch for having said it. I remember very clearly arguing against amniocentesis, figuring that it was an invasive procedure that would only, quote, catch things we didn't think we wanted caught and that might induce a miscarriage to boot. Under those circumstances, it seemed unquestionably better to take the chance that our child would have Downs than to take the chance that he would not be born at all. But although Janet will tell you that she and I certainly did discuss the subject explicitly at least once before Jamie's birth, I've managed to repress any such memory. So I suppose that if we had found out that James had Down syndrome when he was still in the third or fourth month of fetal development, we would have started learning about Downs earlier than we did, and we'd have done what we could to prepare for a potentially difficult birth. We are as strongly pro-choice today as we were before James was born, and our personal decisions regarding Janet's pregnancy with James were consequences of, not exceptions to, our deeply held convictions about abortion and reproductive rights. But what if we had been told, upon receiving the results of an amniocentesis, that our baby would never be able to live a, quote, normal life? What if we had been told that he would never become a conscious being, never learn to talk, read, or recognize his parents? What, in other words, if we had been as seriously misinformed about Jamie's prospects in the spring of 1991 as were most previous generations of parents and providers? In that case, I have to admit, we would have been faced with an extremely difficult decision. And if we were persuaded that our child's life would be nothing but suffering and misery for all concerned, James included, then it's quite possible that we would have chosen to have an abortion instead. Perhaps we would have sought a string of second opinions. Perhaps we would have clung to the hope that our child would be an exception. But so much depends on what kind of information is available to whom. If we had no way of knowing how loving, clever, and normal a child like Jamie can be, we would simply have to rely on the advice of experts. And if those experts told us there was no way to raise such a child, we would probably believe them. The questions themselves are as complex as any moral dilemma we humans have yet devised. 
Who has a right to know about possible fetal abnormalities? And what should be done? And by whom? When abnormalities are detected? What about, quote, quality of life considerations for the parents and child? At what point, if any, do the unborn accrete to themselves a, quote, right to life? Should parents' decisions to bear children rest on financial concerns, on the state of their medical care and health insurance? Should some forms of prenatal testing be mandatory or prohibited? Wow, that's really powerful. Sarah, what's at the heart of this for you? Yeah, I mean, the heart of it for me is this, the capacity of this person to both, um, you know, to not be like, uh, I was a thinking person that I had a kid and I got religion kind of thing, got religion. Right. I mean that in the broad way in the sense that yeah. like, Oh, I, I was so sentimentalized by my own uh, experience that I can, I can no longer have any analytic powers. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So part of it is that, but he was sort of able to say in the same way that my husband and I were, you know, like we're real pro-choice. We're also really profoundly troubled by the way that pregnancy is structured, the presumption mm. of risks and defects, the, the rhetoric around uh, difference. And, um, and more than that, I just love that Barabay here is able to both take us to the scene of his having this conversation with his yeah. wife and really the, the humanity of that and also not backing away from the struggle of it, you know, trying right. to be honest about it in a way that you, your fierce animal protectiveness sort of tells you not to. Right. You want uh, to rewrite history. Yeah, that's <laughs> to right. To explain where you are now. That's exactly right. As opposed right. That's to... That's right. Not have a, a an arc of a narrative that's somewhat constructed in retrospect. That's right. That is exactly right. And I needed to learn to do that. And I, so I have loved Barabay's book, but I also, for that reason, for the transparency of it, mm. but also then for his effortless, what feels like an effortless weaving into really philosophical issues that collect all of us. And that again, did that work for me of going like, oh, it's not just me. Right. Like, you know, modern reproduction, including its technologies, is shaping profound decisions and to be glib about it in either direction, right? right. About, about right to life, so, so called, or about, uh, disability rights, um, to be glib about abortion in, again, in either direction, I think is foolhardy. And I just think it yeah. doesn't take seriously what we're talking about here. And we don't actually have the ethics near to hand for addressing it. One of the parts of the passage he talks about, you know, if we'd followed the expert's opinion, the expert's guidance, things might have been different. I'm curious to know how your work keeps bumping into experts' opinions. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, th this is how I got into, I mean, Graham's birth and arrival uh, and then all of the material culture of the therapeutic contexts of his life. So like PT, OT, early intervention, preschool, all that all those settings were lit up with um, prosthetics and assistive technology. And because I was trained in kind of visual culture and, uh, you know, history, I was like, what is the history of these objects and what are they telling us about, you know, mm -hmm. who, who Graham is and what he means to people and identity and so forth. So I, my life was full of doctors and those therapists mm. and of many, many kinds, you know, immediately. And, so lots of people were making pronouncements about, you know, statistics and, you know, what it meant to be high functioning or low functioning, all those kinds of, all that kind of expertise. And meanwhile, here we were, you know, with our child in, in a very granular and specific life. So it, it again, ushered me into a big story, which is like, oh, I see 
all of the narrative of expertise, as useful as it may be, is also doing this powerful reinforcement work about mm-hmm. who's normal and who's abnormal, whose bodies are broken and whose are whole. And the best you know, narratives that people were offering me in all their forms of expertise, so all the medicine and all the developmental uh, education, were about the success story, right? The, the predetermined success story of, of, of his good life would be his proximity to normal. So right. h- how high functioning, that's what people mean. How, how much like a you know, recognizable person can, will he perform as? So, right. so seeing that in my own life and then meeting you know, in the last 15 years, all kinds of people with atypical bodies. So I have lots of friends now who are blind or deaf or use wheelchairs or any number of things and saying like, oh, these people too were organized by that expertise. That mm. again, in many cases is very well-meaning and, and humanistic in the way it's delivered in the doctor's office or whatever. But it's driven by a really powerful idea of the average, which is like a 200-year-old idea in the social sciences of the way we talk about people at population scale. Those are useful. Stats and averages mm-hmm. are useful to us at population scale, but they fall away when they try to describe our individual lives. And moreover, they have a way of kind of organizing us like they sort of, t- they, they, you know, statistics and averages sort of broadcast to a parent like me oh, you should get about the business of making your child into a project of, of right. quasi-normalcy. So why? So that he'll be respected more, so that he'll be, you know, and this stuff is just so tricky. And again, I met in the context of working in an engineering lab uh, where technology is, of course, created by experts, um, falls away from the, the needs and the wishes and the desires of people who occupy all all positions on a spectrum of normalcy and abnormalcy mm-hmm. and all the slippery ways that that gets mixed up for us. So for instance, in a really concrete way, in an engineering context, most people, you know, students and professors in that context would say, oh, if we have a collaborator who's deaf, it must be the case that the only use of engineering would be for better cochlear implants and hearing aids like that that can only be the desired trajectory and that can therefore only be the the proper application of technology and i learned in you know educating myself in disability studies and reading lots of voices of disabled people that in fact there's a whole set of people who are deaf who are who are not interested actually in hearing right and who have a vibrant culture you know signing and education structures and rich quality of life you know so then it was like okay well where, how can we use the expertise of design and technology to actually organize in a really attentive way around what people are actually asking for in their own idea of the good life? I don't mean like a radically bespoke world for each one of us. That's never going to happen. But I do mean um, what we call in, in tech a human-centered design process, which is just right. to say, you know, let's organize our expertise around people's actual questions. Yeah. How do you help yourself and others navigate that line between the way statistics roll up to a population and the fact that all of us have individual needs. Um, you know, the old saying is we're all, we're all fighting battles, be kind because we're all fighting battles. And that's one way of going, look, um, people with disabilities have more specific ways that they're meeting the world, but you know, (laughs) like I'm 52 and I'm starting to, you know, get slightly arthritic hands say and i'm like oh so what the hell yeah (laughs) and what's how does things need to change for me yeah um so how how do you find that line i think that it feels like that's part of what you wrestle with in in your work it's true and i mean i think the work of adaptation 
Um, and that is so much the theme of the book, like how our bodies mm. adapting every minute, every minute, just from mm -hmm. the way that you, you know, walk up to a door and find the most advantageous way to lean it open, you know, like all <laughs> of that deep adaptation that's happening yeah. for everybody in every state. So assume, right, that people with ALS with very little mobility are also that profound adaptive machine. Right. Some of that adaptation is in the direction of of repair in the sense of like, you would probably like to find a way to not have as much arthritic stiffness in your hands, full stop. Yeah. You would like for that to go away. Great. Right. So that adaptation may be in seeking kind of cures or fixes in pharmacology or in technology or something. Sometimes people are looking for adaptation that also has a kind of critique about it. So like I have a friend uh, who's a wheelchair dancer who came to my lab and said, can you build me a ramp? But I don't want a ramp for getting into a building, as important as those are. I actually want a ramp for stage. I want to nice. use the physics of the ramp, acceleration and resistance, to make beautiful movement. Mm. Okay, so now I'm asking not the world uh, to fix me. I'm actually asking yeah. the world to adapt with me its expectations of what a normative way of, you know, form of a locomotion through the built environment really is. In other words, for my students and for everybody watching, Alice Shepard, who's this wheelchair dancer, for everybody who's watching Alice, they're having to adapt their own ideas about whether wheelchair right. use could be, yeah, difficult in some circumstances. Also, balletic, you know, and uh, energetic and poetic, like all these things that you don't mm. think of as as being part of wheelchair use. So we can be we can be excited about adapting in both those forms. And when I ran the lab, I was sort of like very, very adamant that we would in the same room be partnering with children's hospital, you know, looking at adaptive, you know, bottle nipples or whatever for like little tiny babies. Very solution oriented, very tinkering, very fix it, very adaptive in the repair yes. sense. And that across the same room, we'd be working with somebody like Alice Shepard on a ramp for dancing. And we would call mm. it all adaptive technology. We would call it all humanistic kind of work, we would put problem solving in the same room with question finding. That's what that's where an artist, you know, lands in an engineering school. That for me, it just felt so important <laughs> right. to say, this is an undivided house. Why? Because no one kind of fix it, no one address, you know, no one approach would do justice to this magnificent thing, which is the body in all its variety. So let's just mm -hmm. be attentive to that. And so I'm living this out, you know, with my son too, like, there are lots of really hardline progressives in disability who would say that, you know, my son Graham, you know, shouldn't have to be made ready for the workplace because work is a capitalist construct and we've got to get rid of all that. I understand those critiques. But the fact is that probably Graham, he talks about having a job now. He probably will want that, that normalized mm -hmm. and normalizing way of being mm -hmm. in the world. So I have to honor that. It's his life, not mine. Right. So, yeah. so that adaptation has to be this big, supple category that can include both, I often say, repair and critique, critique and repair, yeah. you know, like both having our critical wits about us and saying like, the inherited world, the notion of average is a monolith that is trying to organize us all the time, we can push back against that. And also, we can ask for better mousetrap, you know, fixes to the world that yeah. are clever, ready to hand in the big box store, you know. What's the moment for your students that shifts a perspective on this? Because I suspect if it's true for your students, it's true for all of us in terms yeah. of a thing that will make you suddenly go, oh, oh, right. Yes. <laughs> I haven't really thought of that. Yeah. Is, is there a, a, a thing that 
allows the kind of the scales to fall from the eyes. It is that it is the work, the classic work of art, which at its best does that kind of defamiliarizing. It takes mm. the thing that you thought you knew and it turns it utterly on its head. So for example, we worked with another, uh, an art historian uh, named Amanda Kasha, who has a form of dwarfism. So she stands about four feet tall and she came to uh, my classroom and said, what I really want is a lectern, but right. foldable, portable at my scale. I actually don't this want to be the, made. the opening in, chapter of your book, right? Yeah, that's the opening yeah. chapter of the book. So I tell that story to sort of say, that's that moment in art, that defamiliarizing moment, or sometimes in art circles, we call it estrangement. And that's not a jargony term. It just means the moment where the very familiar thing that you thought by the device mm. of, of an artwork just makes you go, oh, wait, I now I see it again. I'm sort of jolted out of that you right. know, just like my ordinary categories and my executive functioning and list making and getting things done. Because Amanda walks into the room and now you're looking at where are the light switches placed on the wall and oh, the levers right. on the doors. And you see that the world is organized around a kind of normative stature. And when she comes to the room and says, I want a device that is like this nimble way of actually bringing the room to me. So we built mm. for her this um, a lectern that is foldable, portable, travelable, but it's a lectern at her scale. It's a really short one, you know, that folds, yeah. packs flat. So what that means is every time she goes into a room, she brings the room, the dimensions of the room to her body in a way. Right. And only art really can do that. So in other words, my students are there thinking, oh my goodness, I have this hammer like literally and also figuratively that's looking for a nail, which is like, where are these poor people who need help? Like I'm here, you know, like mm. they, in the best way, they're like, I have a technology tool and I want to use it for good. So surely somebody needs my help. Right. And she's walking in and kind of going like the thing that you think is a prosthesis is not the thing I'm going to ask you for. And so now that's, that's when they go like, Oh, wait a minute. Might Amanda be happy in that body? You know, right. might she be having, you know, the full complement of human experiences in that body. Oh my goodness. What does that mean about everybody else I've looked at on the street and thought, thank goodness I'm not them. Like now right. I have to undo all those categories. And to me, there's nothing quite like art. And I mean this art in the most prosaic sense. Like you are like reading a novel about somebody unlike you, right? And you are just jolted out of your, mm -hmm. your ordinary categories because you say, oh my gosh, I would make a completely different choice than this character would. What right. does that mean? You know, you, we all are seeking this out in our shows and our books and all that stuff. And it turns out that the engineering lab can also do that. Sometimes it's called critical design in my field. So it's like design that is problem solving. And that lectern, man, I mean, it had to be, it had to be engineered. <laughs> like it had to, it had to right. work. But it also is like resonant with a question that is not resolvable in like a quick, you know, ad mm. face of an ad. It, it's like, what, you know, like, it's, I just love it when Amanda comes out and like has this lectern and everybody like there's she doesn't comment about it and she does it in her classroom too as a professor and she often won't even remark about it but everybody is getting the message because that is <laughs> right like very potent object is in the room yeah for me there's nothing better than that now i just want to say are my students going to go on and do this they're not they're going to software companies they're making stuff at scale like i understand that yeah but what i'm banking on is the very old idea of what an education does for you which is to enlarge your categories and to make you you know like productively uncertain about the kind yeah, of story yeah. that you've been shaped with that is the work of an education it's always been that way and it always will be in yeah. an engineering context people are very much like do, using an roi transactional form of education right they're going to be launched into the most lucrative yeah. careers on offer i'm not knocking it education is expensive 
But I feel like I owe it to them in that exchange to rearrange their categories too. And to say, don't, (laughs) right, right. Before you rush out to build your app, you know, for blind folks, you should ask them, right? What do they actually want? Because the thing that you can't imagine is how deeply Mm. adapted their bodies are. And also, by the way, how rich their lives are uh, in turn. Savior complex. Yes. Talk about, you know, the. Yeah. Broad categories, white people going over to the yes. you know, the, the subcontinents to That's kind right. of save the day, and it's That's playing right. out in a different way. That's right. There again, it's like if that, that humanist refrain that if nothing human is alien to me. I mean, I find. That's the most productive work that disability can do where you go, oh, mm. I too live on a planet in a body that has needs. Mm. Oh, okay. That doesn't mean my body is the same as my friend Steve's, you know, who has ALS, advanced ALS. The, the differences matter. Nonetheless, a body that's assisted, adaptive, uses technologies in all kinds of ways, has needs. Okay, if we reduce the alienness of that idea, then we're asking better questions. What do we want? Yeah. What is a good life? How would we build it together? Mm. You know. How has the idea of common space changed for you through the work that you do? Yeah. Well, um, you know, I... I lived in LA for almost 10 years, which is a, a place where people tend to have like beautiful, tiny jewel like gardens behind <laughs> walls, you know, or like lovely, you know, not even rich people, just like lovely, you know, patios that they can use 12 months of the year or whatever, but kind of private, private sphere, you know, good weather, indoor, outdoor living. And almost nothing in the way of public space. And so, Mm. and, and great weather, like 350 days a year or something. So (laughs) like my first two kids were born in LA and, you know, I couldn't find like many parks with just proper shade structures and Mm. an investment in mature trees and so on. So I moved to Cambridge, back to Cambridge, Mass, and where we have like six months of winter. (laughs) Yeah. But in one warm season, (laughs) (laughs) but in one warm season, I had met, you know, 10 families in the neighborhood with kids like mine. Why? Because of commonly held space and by Mm. city planners who invested in and nurtured those big trees that give us shade all year long and who thought about lining the play lot with a bench for you to actually sit down for a second and still be able to see your child's safety. I mean, just all this investment in the public commons. And once you are moving through the world, like I have with a double stroller and a baby strapped to your chest, now you're thinking a lot about where the bathrooms where are the elevators, you know, mm. and, and, you know, you notice then the way that stairs have been built, you know, in a kind of relentless way in lots of our cities with just the assumption that like, that people who move the culture are not people who are, you know, beset by a toddler who's learning to walk or an older right. adult and uh, whose company they're walking or, you know, are using crutches or a cane or something else. Yeah, and yeah. certainly not somebody with a disability, legibly permanent. So then you realize like, oh my goodness, the commons actually bears out, both bears out the idea, Mm. you know, that cities have been built with, that is the the idea of the citizen, the idea of the kind of productive, you know, economic worker, but also then our choice to intervene in those public spaces reshapes then who can be in public space. So I tell the story in the book about um, Ed Roberts, who was one of many uh, activists in the 1960s and 70s in the United States, who lobbied for... Uh, the implementation of curb cuts. So just the, right. that slow ramp, you know, that cuts the um, corner of the sidewalk into the street. And the pushback they got at the time was like, curb cuts, why do we need curb cuts? You know, like there are no people, you know, using wheelchairs on the sidewalks. And Robert says, I quote him in that saying, 
they didn't realize that their reasoning was circular. Of course, you don't see people on the streets, right. you know, unaccompanied in wheelchairs because they can't, they can't, they can't there be there in the first place. Yeah. Right. But what a profound idea that actually the built environment might, act, like in its literal material structure, right. might hold uh, a kind of structural bias like we would talk mm. about now, but that the, in the actual material and that conversely, intervening in the actual material makes a different civic space possible. What an idea, yeah. you know, like, so now you have curb cuts rolled out at infrastructural scale. I mean, the improbability of that and also the, the, the sort of both very modest, you know, kind of movement of it. It wasn't like high tech or anything, but rolled out across the country, you know, after the Americans with Disabilities Act and laws like it in other countries in the world. I mean, you know, th that actually, it, it intervenes in the built environment that then also yeah. makes a kind of commons and public space that is always about the public sphere. So it's not just mm. public space. It is in that very practical sense. Can you get into onto transportation? Can you get to the voting booth? Can you get to your school and throughout it? But it is also, can you get into the public sphere? So can you be an enfranchised right. citizen? So I just have never gotten over how design has this both mirror kind of work of reflecting downstream and yes. also this kind of galvanizing work. So it does this, it's silly to be either techno determinist or like think that uh, tech is right. all this, you know, it's only a reflection of the, of the culture. Neither of those is true. It's much more interesting to think about it in the bi-directional way of these things pushing and pulling. Yeah. So it's been a great conversation. Feels like a roll on for another couple of hours, but yeah. it's not going to, um, here's a, a final question. Um, what needs to be said that hasn't yet been said in this conversation between you and me? Well, let me just say in the most plain terms that I think the places where disability meets design invites people, invites all of us to look at both our very everyday environments hmm. and at our own bodies and the bodies of people that we love and the people that we see on the street with new eyes and it really, neither of those things is a specialist enterprise. I mean, neither the word disability or design is in the title of my book on purpose because they seem like, you know, areas of expertise that you seek out if you think they're relevant to you. Right. But I just want to say, you know, in the, in the strongest possible way that this is the most interesting meeting of the body in the built world that I know of. It's not a kind of tragedy overcomer story. It's really just the most fascinating thing with high political stakes that I can think of. How do bodies make it through their kitchens, their offices, down the street, into the world? And what is, what's the built world that each of us wants to live in for our whole lifespan, if and when our bodies change? Time is more like a kiss than a stone. After our conversation, I went back to this quote from the physicist Carlo Rovelli, and I couldn't find it exactly, but this is one of the organizing ideas in his book, The Order of Time. The world is not things, it's happenings. It's not the world, it's the way our humanity meets the world that animates the universe. I deeply admire Sarah's work because, you know, as much as it's about inspiring people to make things, it's really about freeing us, all of us, to have happenings, to have experiences that allow us to meet, to meet fully the universe, to kiss the universe, to kiss life. If this conversation's moved you, there are a couple of additional chats you should take a listen to. First, Krista Couture's episode entitled, I am disabled, but not broken. Brilliant and inspiring. 
second Himana Vengacheya's episode, which is called How to Overcome Loneliness. At the heart of that conversation is the need to listen, to be present, and connect. For more information on Sarah, sarahendron.com is the place to go. And of course, you can buy her book in all those places you would regularly buy a book. I'd encourage you to buy local before you buy from Amazon. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. It's always a pleasure to have you along for the ride. If you're so moved, a um, review or a thumbs up or something on your podcast app saying you like the conversation, you like the podcast means a lot. It's one of those small incremental ways that this podcast grows and becomes more successful. Word of mouth really helps. So if you think of somebody in your life who'd like to listen to this interview, please pass it along to them. And maybe you'll join the hundreds of people who are now part of the Duke Humphreys. It is a free membership site and it gives you access to downloads and transcripts and other bits and pieces as well. Thank you. You're awesome and you're doing great.